the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, we just want to mention we have that Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a buck a month there, but if not, maybe leave us a cool review on iTunes. Today, we have Gil Morejon rejoining us, translator of French philosophy and author of the work the Unconscious of Thought in Leibniz, Spinoza, and Hume, which we'll be focusing on today. But uh, welcome back, Gil. Love to have you. Also, for the audience, if you're interested and you find this episode great, you should take a look at the episode we did with Gil on the prolegomena, Kant's prolegomena, as well as an episode of our Anti-Oedipus series, which I'll also post those in the notes. But thanks for coming back. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Gil, welcome back for the third time. I think, gosh, you're one of the only ones we've had back three times. I mean, not counting Leon Brenner, who kind of showed up for a two-part and then a third, if you will. So, Other than like the series we did. Yeah, right. You're now on the Hall of Fame. <laughs> um, Do I get like a star, like a Hollywood? Exactly. You'll be the first. Technically, the our emblem, if you yeah. vision it, it is a star. So we'll- It is a star. We could we could at least, as we always say it, retell the origin story, but you can maybe also go into something of the genesis of this book and yeah, sure. take us on a journey. It's actually kind of nice the um the way that these three episodes that we've done together kind of form a little series of their own. I think I've told you a little bit about my my sort of origin story as you put it in mm-hmm. the last couple episodes, but I really was captivated by anti-oedipus like mm-hmm. as like the first book probably philosophically that like really captured me and i spent a long time kind of dwelling with it and then when i got to graduate school i had done like a kind of intensive study of it in undergraduate mm-hmm. and then when i got to grad school you know initially i thought oh yeah i'll you know work on on Deleuze. and obviously i've kept a sort of interest in Deleuze alive but it turned out that for my own sort of purposes in initially trying to just figure out what the hell's going on with Deleuze, kept mm-hmm. returning to his sources. And that kind of drew me back to these early modern thinkers trying to like figure out, you know, what sort of what the component parts or elements of Deleuze's own thought, kind of reconstructing those. And I found it was just like for my own, like I said, for myself, it was just more fruitful and generative to go back there and to and to think with them. And I can even admit that the initial sort of shape of this project that I wanted to work out and I I still want to do this maybe I will someday I want to sort of do a study of the concept of the miracle or the miraculous um, especially in early modern thought. right right because Hume writes about it he's got the little essay, he's got the essay on miracles and um, and you had you had a footnote or two about Spinoza and deny which I guess would that be the 
Theological Politicus yeah, Tractatus. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I've actually got an essay coming out on Spinoza's Critique of Miracles in a volume that's being edited by Dan Taylor and Marie Wuth, New Perspectives on the Theological Political Treatise. And I've got an art uh, and in a chapter in that book. What's where the I talk publisher? About Spinoza's critique. What's that? What's the publisher? Edinburgh, I believe. You're sticking with uh, with Edinburgh because <laughs> every because by the way, and, and continue your thought. Uh, Gill's two translations of what? Uh, let's see, Zorbichvili's yeah, Spinoza's, Spinoza's paradoxical, paradoxical conservatism. conservatism. Yeah, and then tell us about the uh, the Matheron in case people are interested more in Spinoza. I think they're really great texts. These are two books that I've translated. One. The first one was Alexander Matron's It's a collection of essays that myself and David Maritzella did together. And we sort of edited it along with Philippa de Lucese. And it's like 20 of his standalone essays. So Matron, like, sorry, Matron um, wrote a book on Spinoza that was, well, he's got two volumes on Spinoza. The first is called Indivi in, in French. It's Individual and Community in Spinoza. And it was really sort of impactful. Uh, and then he wrote one that I'm also really interested in and may return to Christ and the Salvation of the Ignorant in Spinoza. Okay, I haven't heard of that one. You and I have talked about the first volume, that massive tome. It's gigantic, yeah. The two books that he wrote, but then he also wrote something like 40 standalone essays throughout his career, uh, his long sort of tenure as the sort of one of the dozens of Spinoza studies in France. Right. Along with maybe, I don't know, Gerhou um, or like Macheret. That's a good collection of essays that we picked out 20 of his pieces that we thought made for a representative sample of his work. And it's really the first of his stuff that's been translated into English, apart from a couple of pieces here and there. And then the second was the Zerbichvili book, Spinoza's Paradoxical Conservatism, which is, I think, a really creative and like innovative reading of Spinoza that focuses on... Zerbichvili has like this genius, this talent of finding things in a thinker that you wouldn't notice and which seem really marginal or sort of peripheral right and then he just shows you that like it's weirdly central that mm -hmm. it kind of is all over the place it's kind um, of a deridian move right there right of, yeah right yeah. so like in for instance in in the in the paradoxical conservatism book he's like okay let's talk about spinoza's concept of childhood and you're mm -hmm. like childhood what do you when does spinoza ever talk about childhood Right. And then he just shows you like, oh, yeah, it's like everywhere. And it happens at all of these crucial moments where like we're going to use this metaphor of like the infants adultus, this adult child or, you know, <laughs> the man child. Yeah, yeah man. There's man children all over the place. Or like, you know, in his hands, he shows that Spinoza thinks of childhood as the kind of image of humanity and becoming uh, as this kind of difficult, laborious process of attempting to become autonomous, mm -hmm. a process that requires the help of others in which there's no guarantee for success and at the same time he has to reject because of his kinds of commitments against final causality or teleology and the sort of right. aristotelian way of thinking about childhood that's pretty dominant up through the middle ages of like oh the child is just like a human in potentia right like a an incomplete person for spinoza everything is already perfect there's no question of being only in potentia or incomplete so what is the child then and he gets to connect it to really fascinating other developments like you know if you've ever seen like renaissance painting where mm. there's babies like you right. know that they just look like little guys they do they yeah <laughs> look like children or babies and Zerbich really argues that this is really because it's not until somewhere around early modernity that like 
childhood is discovered for itself mm. instead of just being thought of as like a, a yeah a little dude but like there becomes like a new science of pediatrics uh you get right. a new sort of way of of seeing the child in a way that hadn't been seen before and spinoza elaborates this philosophically i think it's like the coolest part of the book but there's also chapters on absolute monarchy uh, mm. and then there's a whole study on this kind of classical platonic problem even of like how does one become wise the sort of you know dilemma can you uh from the stage of ignorance know what it is that you're after in attempting right. to learn and he thinks that spinoza like works this out in a really interesting kind of way with this image of like being out of one's elements returning to one's own nature i think it's a really cool book i recommend that anyone's got any passing interest in spinoza should check it out there's really nothing quite like it and yeah, those and you, are both with Edinburgh. Yeah. And you were you were mentioning you your essay on on miracles. the critique of miracles. Yeah. So right. So I think that, and again, I can I can like admit that so much of this sort of things that uh kind of became starting points for my research were coming out of confusion about Deleuze. And so as you both know, in Ante Oedipus, they'll talk about there being a miraculating machine. And I was always like, why are you saying that? <laughs> you know, even if I understand the concept, like it's something like arrogating to oneself or appearing to be the cause of something. You're not actually the cause of, you're the quasi cause of, an apparent objective cause of. But like, why miraculating? What's going on there? And again, like just going back to his sources and realizing that like, oh, all of these people have something, have interesting things to say about, about miracles and the miraculous mostly in the mode of rejecting them right in one form or another these are all like rationalist thinkers for whom like miracles really can't be or uh you know what the things are that we call miracles turn out to be confusions on our part i was gonna say it's like the it's like a great case study of inadequate yes, knowledge or the something. perfect instance of inadequate knowledge and one that i think kind of ties together spinoza's like not just philosophical theological but also political commitments because it's a matter of authority when you've got a prophet claiming to be able to produce or to bear witness to a miracle there's no such thing as a real break in the order of nature but if they can get you to buy that story yep. then there's a kind of you know there's a, a relationship of power that gets established there that i think spinoza's concerned to you know to pick apart as much as he is like you know on good theological grounds there's no such thing as a miracle but like also notice who's telling you the miracle story and what they're after that was my kind of initial thought, like, I want to explore this miracle thing. And then somehow that became chapter one of that spiraled out of control and became the ridiculous book that you guys have just taken a look at, in which I, no I noticed essentially that there was a common feature to these three thinkers, which is that they're kind of discovering, or at least this is the argument that I make, yes. that they're discovering something like an unconscious dimension of thought that doesn't quite look like what we'll get a lot later in Freud. Most times people will trace the, the birth of the unconscious as a concept to Freud, or at least to like maybe, you know, some other sort of proto-psychoanalytic thinkers in somewhere in the you know, maybe 18th, 19th century. I mean, Nietzsche is one that's sometimes thrown sometimes out there. Sometimes toss Nietzsche into the mix. And then there's <clears> other, <throat> you know, early psychoanalytic thinkers like Charcot. This is different. There's not 
it's not quite the same way of thinking about the unconscious. And of course, you know, I've got my Freud skepticism coming out of Deleuze. So like, it was exciting to think, okay, what sort of other ways of, of articulating what the unconscious looks like? Can I find resources for in these early modern thinkers? Because again, the claim that I'm trying to make in the book is like, yeah, they obviously understand that thought is, is conscious in many cases, but then there's also problems that start to arise explanatorily if you identify thinking with consciousness, which I, yep. for instance, think Locke does. I think Locke right. more or less explicitly says, look, thought just means being conscious of stuff. And so like anything other than that is just like a contradiction in terms. It doesn't make any sense. And then you get like one of the funniest texts from early modernity is like, you know, Locke has his essays on human understanding. And then Leibniz writes the new essays on human understanding, right? which is presented as a dialogue. And my friends, let me tell you, this is not a dialogue. It's two guys talking, one of whom is just like re like copy pasting block quotes from Locke's essays. And then there's the other guy who's Leibniz's mouthpiece being like, hmm, that seems wrong. Here's what's true instead. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just that for like 600 pages. He doesn't actually publish it because Locke dies just before he finishes the manuscript. Oh, okay. And he's like, ah, this would be rude. But he says in response to that line, he's like, you can't actually believe that. He can't actually think that there's no part of thought that is not conscious. Right. Because then how would you explain habits? How would you explain desire not kind of matching up right this sort of classical socratic problem of like if i just knew what was good i would do it right but right. i sometimes do what's worse this is the problem of like acrasia um acratic intemperate desire and it seems to me that you don't really get a satisfying explanation of how it's possible as spinoza's obsessed with to see the better but do the worse anyway unless there's an unconscious dimension to the mind that partially determines what it is that you want, what it is that you do, in spite of what you might consciously understand to be the case, right, right. or to be true. And so this is the sort of kind of, you know, first way into thinking about these thinkers, like reading these thinkers together in this light. They're all worried about these sort of accretion moments. They're all worried about what it's like to try to do better, but to not seem to be able to control yourself. And yeah, in Hume and in Spinoza, I think this is pretty clear, right? Like you also get like those famous lines from Hume at the end of the first book of the treatise about how like, you know, reason is only and ever ought to be the slave of the passions. He means something like, yeah, dude, reason all you want, but like, let's not get it twisted. What's going to actually determine your actions is the affects, like the, right. the feelings, right? And that might not bear much of a relationship to what's rationally graspable at all. And your arguments might not get you very far, right? Like this is the sort of almost, uh, you know, anti-climax of the first part, that first book of the treatise. He's like, bad news, you guys. I was trying to find out if I know anything. And the answer is, uh, doesn't look like it. Mm -hmm. And it now doesn't seem like I'm going to be able to demonstrate the existence of anything outside of me. I don't know if I'm a thing. I don't know if causality is real. I don't know if there is a world. And then he goes... All right. Well, anyway, that's kind of a bummer, but I'm going to go play backgammon with the boys because, you know, the the arguments don't determine me in the way that my passion does. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's the kind of the impetus. Right. Like understanding that, you know, we have ethical problems uh, that require our attention. We would like to do better, but it's not always clear how 
conscious reflection, rational analysis can contribute meaningfully to that. It seems, in fact, like often it doesn't get us very far at all. And so, yeah, that's a kind of first pass into how I got here and what this book's trying to do. I like that. And, I, you know, I, I, I'm glad you brought up this question because once I started diving into your book, that was one of the first things that came to mind was this, I don't know if I would call it naive, this Socratic platonic belief in there's different ways of formulating it or translating it, but it's basically no one, you know, errs willingly or knowingly, knowingly. Right? Willingly, no, right? knowing, yeah, yeah. knowing the better and doing right. the worse is how right. you formulate it very, very nicely. And I always wondered if that was more of a, if that was actually taken as a kind of principle or meant as a principle, it does seem like something Socrates holds to, but right. it, if it, it makes one wonder about the naivety of that almost a kind of optimism that seems at odds but at the same time it it gives a at least a narrative if not a logical reason for what for why Socrates does what he does yeah yeah and this is tough right it's hard to figure out how to motivate the philosophical project of rational reconstruction or of you know yeah critical analysis if it turns out that it's not going to give you these practical consequences that you hope to achieve. It becomes then, from from my perspective, the question has to change, right? We can no longer presuppose or assume that knowing better means doing better. Then we have to start asking a different kind of question, namely like, okay, what is the logic of determination of action? What are the actual logics according to which people end up desiring what they desire and doing what they do with the understanding that it may not correspond to um yeah knowledge in the way that a good platonist would assume is the case you formulate this in a nice way that that recurs especially in the spinoza chapter particularly the i guess the second spinoza chapter where you you kind of postulate and then uncover the reasons for which you postulate this that the sort of truth of an argument so to speak or 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 a truth is uh separate from in this investigation of the unconscious thought it's separate from its its power of affect right yeah and yeah. that seems to be the if not refutation of socrates's <laughs> principle of this no you know if you know the better you do the better it seems to create this disjunction that opens up a space for showing why that's not the whole story yeah, and it's not to deny either that arguments can never be effective. It's just right. that they don't automatically go hand in hand. And, you know, I recently, um, I think I may have mentioned this last time I was on the pod with you guys, but like Maybe. I, I, I had done a, a, a reading of Barkley not so long ago. Yeah, yeah like, I think you brought I him up. That. I think you brought, yeah. Well, this is like a really good example of it because like I have to say you kind of can't, argue against him like the arguments all work and the position that he's that he's arguing for is completely bonkers and i can't accept it right there's no way i have to just say like there's no such thing as bodies they don't Mm -hmm. exist right bodies aren't real there's only ideas we're just ideas in the mind of of god which sustains us but i'm just Mm -hmm. i'm just a thought and you're just a thought and there's no such thing as material reality i'm like that's but that's ludicrous like i really can't follow you there but the arguments all work which is annoying right now now does that does that accord with something where i mean i had kind of forgotten this which you know i 
tend to do anyway. Um, there's isn't one of Spinoza's definitions of the body something like, or I guess this the definition of the mind is the idea of the body, right? Right. right. So, in a certain extent, would would Spinoza be able to spar with Barclay here, or would Barclay not be able to agree with this this notion of you know the idea of the idea or the the right. mind is the idea of the body and you know no he's just gonna he just rejects outright that there is such a thing as body or right. maybe more like sympathetically that you don't have a coherent idea when you okay. have a, a body when you say body you don't know what you're talking about we don't you know actually, what a body can do right you don't know, you know what know? a body could do you don't know what a body is because every time you say body that's just an idea again Right, that's you're mm -hmm. still just talking about an idea, like matter, for like example. Matter, exactly. Yeah. Right. Every time I think I'm talking about something that's not an idea, that's an idea still, and you're kind of trapped. So yeah, for Spinoza, the mind is the idea of the body, and this, like, uh, like to use the language you were just kind of pushing towards, that opens up a really interesting space because I'm certainly not conscious of everything that goes on in my body. Right. And then there's a whole discovery then of you know if I don't know what a body can do. I also don't know what the mind can do. Um, right, right. And the sort of activity of the mind, which is for Spinoza what deserves the name freedom and what we should be striving after, trying to increase our powers to think and to act on accordance with our understanding, our power of, of thinking, that involves determinate processes of which I'm not aware and maybe yep. I'm constitutively unaware, right? This mm -hmm. is the sort of strong version of the claim I'm making in the book. It's not just that there's stuff that I don't know yet. Right. It's that there are like parts of of the constitution of my mind that I don't have access to, even if I do good rational reflection. Right. Even right. if I become self-critical or self-reflexive, it's not that, you know, and again, like the early moderns all kind of have these weird discussions that kind of go in a similar direction. Hume says something similar where he's like, look, I'm trying to talk about this idea that I have of power. And maybe I have this idea from experience in the form of like, oh, I think I'll move my my body and then my arm moves. And it's like, well, OK, do you know how that worked, actually? <laughs> You're going to tell me that like you are conscious of like the tendons and the neurons and the pathways. And right. How is all that actually happening? Are you thinking about the musculature that connects to your bone or is something kind of mysterious happening here? And he says it's kind of mysterious. And. I don't know, depending on your temperament, good news or bad news, that's sort of how everything works. And yeah. we're kind of stuck here at this level of effects without being able to really get back to causes. And this is where, where again, I think maybe the logic of the miracle might be pointing at something similar, right? There's apparent effects that must have a cause. We postulate that there must be a cause in accordance with the principle of sufficient reason, because outside of that, what do we have? No possibility of explanation. But like, I don't actually have access to these causes and at the level of like the mind or the shape of the mind i can think about how you know my habits have kind of crystallized in accordance mm. with the experiences that i've had but that process of habituation certainly isn't like a conscious process that right. i'm like directing in any meaningful way and then the habits of thinking that i form on the basis of those experience they also kind of have an automatism to them and so yeah there's yeah, I don't know if this is coherent or clear. I'm it kind is of, kind of all over the place. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that that's. I was just thinking of a few things. One, I mean, since we mentioned Freud, and I mean, at least on a few things, they would, um, 
agree or Freud would agree with these agree in the sense in which they would uh, harmonize a little bit, right? Where Freud specifically, I'm thinking of the metapsychological papers even before then, but more like in the paper on the unconscious around World War One, you know, he kind of takes up this argument against the philosophical. I think he means philosophy broadly because he's not going to like name Mm-hmm. philosophers and thinkers but you know he's going against uh this trend whereby thought would be equivalent with consciousness and the other thing was you know you're saying this stronger version of the unconscious of thought it's not merely the pre-conscious system as though I have a thought or an idea, maybe it doesn't come to the surface, but if I, if I search and recollect enough, mm-hmm. if I use enough mm-hmm. of my mental capacities, then I can bring it to the fore. For Freud, you know, that's, yeah. that's just the pre-conscious. It's not, right. you know, there's something much more constitutive. Yeah. And I think that Freud would probably agree with, for example, in the Spinoza chapter based on, um, this argument that you painstakingly go through and, and nicely provide evidence for that inadequate ideas aren't merely something to just completely eradicate. They are a part of the constitution right. of us having ideas at all. And I think yeah. like for Freud, there's something similar where I believe he would say like, look, no, the unconscious isn't something we can just kind of uh, incrementally reduce and get rid of. It is a constitutive part of the system of any conscious it's it's that transcendental kind of argument he might not formulate it in those terms i'd have to look or see i wouldn't be surprised if he could be formulating those terms but it seems like there's i think you even say this maybe the introduction right this there's this transcendental argument for the very possibility of consciousness right that there is this unconscious of thought yeah yeah i do use that language and i think that so one version of that is actually in the Leibniz chapter where I'm mostly focused on Leibniz's really fascinating idea of like petite perceptions, right? Right, like right. Minute perceptions, however you want to call them. The, the um, petite, the little, the little ones. The little, yeah. Just little guys. <laughs> yeah, the little guys. Because he's the closest, like one of the, one of the hurdles in making the argument of the book is that like none of these thinkers have the language of unconscious available to them. I think Maimon fact, comes closest, right? He comes closest to Leibniz, the language that Leibniz Freud does. Or well, was it was it Leibniz? Which one said the the is the Umbu? What? Uh, oh, that's a Schelling. Oh, that was Schelling. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah and I think that's he comes the, close to Freud it's language. Close, right? And it's in the system of transcendental idealism, I think. So it's like eighteen hundred, and it's like yeah, he's and there again, he's talking about the sort of active impediment to just like free spontaneous volitional willing right the objective counterpart to my conscious volitional action and it's like it's something unwilled it's something unthought which is part of the mind as well posited by it making it possible it's obverse or underside um and Leibniz comes closest of my three kind of Uh uh, key figures to like actually having language that's really appropriate for talking about something like an unconscious because he distinguishes between perception and apperception where apperception is perception of which I'm aware. Yeah. Which implies of course that perceptions I don't have to be aware of. And that might seem weird, especially again, if you're like a Lockean, you're like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> right, right, right. I perceive 
and I'm not conscious of it. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> but yeah, with the petite perceptions, it is a sort of retrogressive transcendental argument because without there being these differentials of yeah. perception, um, the actual conscious perception that I that I have right now, where I'm looking around and seeing discrete objects, that wouldn't be possible. And the like really lovely example that Leibniz returns to over and over again is like the crashing wave the right? crashing of the waves Deleuze yeah. comes back to this in Deleuze the fold and difference of repetition yep. yeah right and so to rehearse the example as i know you guys know it um is like well when i hear the crashing of a wave that maybe does sound like one thing right i hear the sound of the wave crash but what is that and the answer right. is it's this integration mm -hmm. of it, however many a multitude uh, um tens of thousands millions of individual drops of water colliding with one another i'm not conscious of any one of those it's not clear that i could be conscious of any right. one of those right but without that the sort of integration of these differentials themselves not consciously perceivable the conscious perception of the wave wouldn't be possible at all yeah so we get a kind of pretty rigorous account then of how yeah unthought or unconscious differentials of perception integrate into a threshold is crossed somehow that integrates into a discrete conscious perception and yeah. now we have apperception right and so this is the kind of way that Leibniz gets us to to see that yeah no it's not just consciousness all the way down that actually doesn't that wouldn't be possible no he thinks right it wouldn't it wouldn't be possible for that to to take place and again, he ties it immediately to habit, right? Which I think is fascinating. And I also make the argument along the way that like this kind of undermines his attempts at saving freedom, right? Because in order for there to be uh, free action for him, there's got to be, you know, volition. It has to be informed by understanding uh, or, you know, has to be informed by knowledge. So I'm not just like, I can't be called free if I'm just doing something kind of randomly without knowing what I'm doing. Right. But then like, what is it that I understand? And the answer is, a very vanishingly small part infinitesimal of the actual yeah of the actually yeah. infinite kind of texture of the world in which i find myself and then how much understanding can we say that that actually amounts to and i think it's not very much maybe enough but, but it's not, not nothing much. maybe it's not nothing maybe yeah, yeah. just like those differentials mm -hmm. yeah. no i i like that a lot and i do think it's interesting i guess that's where you bring up Leibniz had the tightrope he's walking is this compatibilist argument right right and it involves a, a number of things but one of which is this divine providence comes to the fore against what the spontaneity spontaneity or just the freedom of the will right, right. it's I think that this this is where Deleuze tries to like conserve the compossibilization of of the monads without some sort of archie principle of, of a god who would preordain everything right yeah yeah i mean that's like one of deleuze's moves always right is he's like i'm gonna hold on to as much of these systems as possible while rejecting like the thing that actually holds them all together right um, subtracting like, some tra transcendence or something like exactly. that exactly right? yeah like the transcendental means... deduction yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a subtraction yeah 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 um, <laughs> Yeah, that's certainly true in in his reading of Leibniz, right? Where now, like you know, he's gonna still save. He's gonna retain the language of God, but like mm. God doesn't mean the same thing when Deleuze says it than when Leibniz says it. Right. That's pretty clear, right? And similarly, in his sort of 
rehabilitation of Spinoza, like he says things like, you know, it suffices, I think he says this in Difference in Rep, to make substance turn around the modes instead of the other way around. I was going to ask you this if this came up, but I, I thought I might leave it on the wayside. I thought that was interesting. Instead of having the modes revolve around substance, right? as you just said, yeah. he wants substance to revolve around the modes. Is, right. that, is that, again, this way of subtracting the one? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay. And, and like privileging you know, multiplicity, all that kind right. of. Yeah. yeah. And like for him, like, you know, he gets to he gets to have a somewhat plausible way of defending this by saying, look, with expression, uh, mm. this mm. odd word, of course, that doesn't actually show up in Spinoza's own text, as uh, I think Mathura points out. Mashere, <laughs> Mashere. Mashere, OK. Yeah, uh, that's in the um, in the Zerbachvili book that I translated. There's an, we I added as an appendix a discussion that Mashere and Zerbachvili had about the book in that Mashere has a little kind of swipe where he's like, yeah, it's kind of odd, isn't it, to talk about Spinoza as an expressionist, given like that's a term of, from the art world and also he never used the language. That's kind of interesting. But the idea being that like in just the same way that modes on the sort of classical articulation can't exist by themselves but have to inhere in a substance right well similarly there's nothing to substance other than its expression in modes there's nothing in reserve right what he means by he says like you make substance turn around the modes you ask what substance is and the answer is the modes and nothing right 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 right. and so especially given the way that spinoza does i think evacuate possibility out of things right there's nothing left in substance beyond the actual modes that are engendered or produced there's nothing other than everything <laughs> that's a little silly to say but you know, <laughs> it's not there's not like other other you know contra leibniz there's not other possible worlds there's just this one there's um, not a standing reserve of substance no standing reserve. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have oh, standing man. reserve. yeah exactly exactly but yeah, so I sometimes understand what this is after there. And <laughs> it feels like a stretch. <laughs> well, yeah, because it, it, it is interesting. Then, as you said, it, this is perhaps where, even if he doesn't bring up Spinoza directly, where he has to go, go to great lengths in different repetition to distinguish possibility from potential virtual, which right. seems to be more in line with an argument he takes up from Bergson rather mm-hmm. than from Spinoza. Because the possible is just kind of like, the negative plus some or or being plus some so it's more right. than than being or or something like this right it's same with the negative right it's being plus its negation right right so so the possible is uh somehow more than the actual and, and it leads to all these it leads to um false problems or something yeah. like this right right i tend to think that like when he talks about the virtual this is a way Again, again, of of affirming necessity. I think that this is Mm. his way of thinking about sufficient reason, right? That like there's a logic and a shape of actualization, and what's actualized is you know these pre-individual singularities that are Mm. arrayed in a certain way in what we call the virtual. And there's nothing um, there's nothing chancy about that, right? This is the resolution of problems. It follows a logic. There is a reason. There is a reason for it. Whether or not we ever like get there exactly or whether or not as he puts it we can talk about there being problems in a social register as opposed to the mathematical or whatever i I think he would say so i think he would say so yeah Yeah. he like puts it as a question it's an odd moment in difference in rep where he's like 
can there be social ideas or problems in like, for instance, a Marxian way? And then he talks yeah. about it for like two pages and he's like, maybe. And it's like, I mean, yeah, yeah. It feels like you want to say yes, but I don't really know what just happened. And then we have the the solutions we deserve based on how the problems yeah, yeah, are yeah. determined, which is why it's important not to inherit ready-made problems to undergo, you know, the, the active apprenticeship and learning and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Hey, real quick, if I may, just please to th- throw us completely off. I wondered if you guys had a good suggestion for secondary reading on Spinoza, like a, a good intro text, um, other than just reading the ethics, which I think might be a little bit of a <laughs> steep climb for Is like it, a novice. I like this one. Behind the geometrical method, it's by it's by Curly, one of his translators. Oh, yeah. Um, this is a good little book. Uh, it's not too long. It's about 120 pages. Uh, I think, what's his name? He's written on Kant and Spinoza. Um, I always forget how to pronounce his name. Is it Yavel? Uh, oh, Yermiahu Yovel. Yeah, yeah, Yovel. There we mm-hmm. go. Yeah, Yovel's quite good. Uh, he's got those like Spinoza and other heretics volumes, which are fun. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, yeah, right. Let me see. Let me pull this up. Hold on. I've actually got something on this. Uh, I actually do think that Spinoza, that practical philosophy is a pretty good place to start for like secondary on Spinoza. Uh, I think expressionism is a little bit wonky. It, oh, yeah, yeah. It's a li- and it's a little, it's a little, <laughs> it's definitely too it, long for like a it's definitely too long. Beginner. And, like and it's, it's one of those, uh, it's one of those texts that's more like, you know, with Deleuze secondary, it's like, that's more of a Deleuze book than a Spinoza book. Right? Yeah. Like he's doing his metaphysics there and pretending it's Spinoza, which is that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> but it maybe means it's not the most helpful book if you're trying to actually understand Spinoza. I do like Yovel. Honestly, I think Mathurone is a really good place to start. I like Don Garrett. The book is too long, but it's nature and necessity in Spinoza's philosophy. And I think Dan Garber, Beth Lord, there's just so much stuff out there. Pierre Francois Morrow is really cool. His book has just been translated, Experience and Eternity in Spinoza. That's if you're like trying to get a grip on the ethics. I think that there's like, if you're interested instead in like the political side, yeah, Beth Lord's really great. Philippa Dilichese, Hassana Sharp um, is really good. Uh, Susan James, Moira Gattens. There's tons of stuff. I have a blog post up on my very, very infrequently updated website where I I sketch out like a little beginner's guide to Spinoza, including some uh, some uh, recommendations for secondary lit. Maybe oh, nice. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that sounds good. I was I was thinking too. You mentioned Spinoza practical philosophy. It seems like in a footnote you indicate where you got the title for your work. It seems like Deleuze and I had just forgotten this again. He uses that language that that phrase, the unconscious of thought. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's in Practical Philosophy. You know what? Okay. Give me a second. I can find it. Yeah, in Spinoza Practical Philosophy, pages 18 and 19, he writes, uh, Spinoza's intervention consists in a devaluation of consciousness in relation to thought, a discovery of the unconscious, of an unconscious of thought just as profound as the unknown of the body. Right? Yeah, Again, nice. if it's I like true it. that we don't know what the body can do, we also don't know what the mind can do. And that's right. one of like the little tricks in store for us if we take it seriously. <laughs> no, I, I I like that. That's um that works that works out a lot. That's that's good. And that was a good question, Coop, because I do think that there is a lot of literature on there and and so 
on Spinoza and so can be difficult to to wade through. We should yeah, do the ethics at, he's at been some point. Too long, people. Have been yeah, right. About it for too long. Yeah. That's fair, right? Yeah, no, but yeah, doing the doing the ethics would be interesting. It would might take a couple episodes. Yeah, for sure. You wouldn't <laughs> want to cram it all into into one and and miss out. Um, well, I mean, it's you know not so hard. All you need to do is determine the you know, <laughs> absolutely infinite nature of the divine essence, and <laughs> everything kind of just follows from that. It's pretty straightforward. That's all. Yeah, yeah that's all there is. I, I did actually think that. I kind of liked, uh, or I sort of saw the traces of how desiring production, how where Deleuze kind of gets hops on that bandwagon. Just yeah, and you're some of your kind of like just going over the sort of basics maybe of Spinoza's philosophy. Right. Yeah. No. I think. I mean. So for Spinoza, like he's very explicit, and this happens mostly in like part three of the Ethics, um, where he starts talking about what it is for an individual thing what it's he calls its actual essence mm. it's essentiam um actualum and he says what is the actual essence of any given thing like for instance a human being like you or me or you out there listening he <laughs> says it's desire right and it's the actual essence of a thing is it's striving it's canatus and that means desire which is or is not always something that we're conscious of again right like it turns out that like desire has sometimes clear conscious components and sometimes it happens to, it takes place kind of beneath or behind my conscious awareness of it. I don't always have access to the shape of my striving. For Spinoza, again, something like freedom means coming to understanding of my own nature as a desiring being, because you're not going to get to change it exactly. I don't get to, and this is one of the other interesting things about the Zerbitschfili book. There's a kind of really cool the thing that holds that book together, the, the conservatism book, is that he notices something really fascinating for especially a thinker whose book is called The Ethics. You can't actually desire to have a nature other than the one that you have, for Spinoza, mm. right? You can't desire otherwise than in accordance with what your essence is, if it's just your essence is desire. So how do we want to become otherwise, which ethics surely requires, right? Or like, how if I'm, you know, trying to do better or, you know, act otherwise than I, I am determined to act when I'm sadly confused about stuff. How do I want to be other than this thing that I already am? Do, am I not like condemned to kind of just impotently repeat myself? Condemned um, to be free, right? Start. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or in the political register, like how can a polity want to change its constitution? How can we be? revolutionary or, or desire revolution and this seems like it's an actual problem for spinoza one that like maybe obsesses him really it's got some ways of trying to solve the problem but it is a problem right and and one that i think it causes practical issues for spinoza i think it's usually the case that you know even when he's doing the most abstract esoteric sounding stuff it's motivated by practical concerns right there's a reason why he's so interested in affect and it's not because he thinks that you know it's cool to just do a summary of the emotions it's because <laughs> he thinks this is the logic of subjective determination and like because we care about what we do and how we affect ourselves or how we affect others that logic turns out to be really important really important no i think that that makes sense and that's why deleuze is at pains i think in the very opening of practical philosophy to say there is this distinction between ethics as we might mm -hmm. conventionally think of it, which would be perhaps akin to morality 
right? Versus what Spinoza teaches us right. about about ethics. Yeah, the like distinction there between like you know imminent ethics and like a transcendent moralism, I think, right. is, is really helpful. It is really <clears throat> helpful. <clears throat> Understanding the logic of people's determination does open the door for more, I don't know, kinder, gentler ways of relating than condemning them for failing to live up to an image that you've constructed right, of what they ought to be like. I struggle with this too, because like, I have to confess that, you know, for Deleuze here, the great enemy is going to be Kant uh, mm -hmm. with his moral law, right? Yep. But also sometimes, I don't know, I read Kant and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Don't treat people as means or really right. as ends. Like that sounds fine. I'm okay with that. What's yeah. the problem? You know, or like you know, always relate to the humanity and others, and uh, don't don't you know don't use them. Like yeah, okay. Wait, yeah. wait. Why why are we so why are we so worked up about this? Hey, I might I might tell a lie to to save my friend from from a murderer. Though. I might do that. That I, one I, seemed I, like a flub. I gotta say. I, I I'll, I'll tell I'll tell a couple of white lies. Uh, I will. <laughs> um, you know and further that part of the you know whatever you will sort of turn it into a universal maxim for everyone right on the one hand there's something a kernel of truth to that right what if everyone acted this way but on the other hand again I th and i think that's it's taking that to the extreme that leads one to say that lying is is Mine's never permissible exactly yeah, yeah. Yeah, no lies, even even so-called as he puts it, philanthropic lies. Like no, right. no good. You don't have a right to this. I think it's that kind of extremity that that perhaps become it becomes paralyzing to a certain extent. And it overemphasizes a kind of super egoic self-consciousness where, okay, I'm willing something. Is is this is this cool for everyone? You're no longer in the moment. The analogy I always use, and, and maybe this this is, I think Coop likes it too, because we grew up playing baseball, whatever. If you're up at the plate, you can obviously be thinking, okay, is, you know, I got two strikes on me. He's going to throw me some shit in the dirt. I got to be more careful. But in the, like, in the moment, you cannot be thinking, you cannot be too much in your head, so to speak. Right. When the ball is coming at you, it's hand-eye coordination. It's it's the body, right? right? It's, it's kind of like your, your analogy of Hume. I'm not thinking about if i'm thinking too much about my posture if i'm thinking too much right. about yeah, yeah, yeah. about about my tendons doing the thing i have to allow that instinct to use a just a conventional word obviously uh to to take over even if i already have a little bit of that reasoning there's a point at which i have to not sort of try to hover over and the yeah. situation i got to be in the moment so absolutely well it's interesting you know i know we're just talking about Kant now but like if you <laughs> It's fine. It's if like, it's the period, right? Kind of. Yeah, sort of. You know, an underappreciated text is not the grounding, but the, the actual metaphysics of morals. Mm -hmm. Most people don't get past the groundwork where you got to the <laughs> narrative, which is fair That's enough. enough. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good book. This third section is a mess and he's all over the place. He doesn't know what he's trying to say yet, but that's okay. But the metaphysics of morals is a, a wild book where he's like, okay, now that we figured out this sort of formal principle of this universal law, what does it actually look like in practice? And like, there's a doctrine of virtue and a doctrine of morals. And in the doctrine of virtue, he'll say things that sort of sound like what you just were describing, right? Like you want to cultivate virtuous habits so that you don't have to stop and ask yourself, like, right. Does this with the moral law each right. time, which is kind of like a silly thing to do 
Right? Mm-hmm. Like imagine, you know, I'm I'm walking down the street and I like see someone who's about to get hit by a bus and I'm like, wait. Hey, wait a minute. Hold uh, on. Can let I me check my role. Let me check yeah. my maxim status real fast <laughs> right. and see if this is universalizable. <laughs> you know, that's not that's Does not it, the point. Let me check my diagram. Does it yeah. fit into yeah. this? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, do I find a contradiction when I try to raise this to the <laughs> level of universality? Like, okay, let's let's get serious, right? Right, right. That book also is really funny too, because he also has like lots of digressions where he gets kind of weird and talking about like again what sorts of good practices are. And he says, for instance, like, here's a good question. How many people should you have at a dinner party? Okay. And it's like, well, I've consulted with the a priori, uh-huh. uh, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it turns out that I can tell you that it's somewhere between like mm, four and seven, four because and less seven, than okay. four. And you're going to wind up having kind of breaks in the conversation, which is awkward. And like more than seven and you start get breaking out into factions. And then we're going to have like small groups that are just only okay. talking to themselves and yeah. not each other. And it's like, I don't know if that's an a priori synthetic proposition, but it <laughs> right. does sound like pretty good advice. <laughs> no, no, I mean, there's something to that, right? Where if you have three people, the triumvirate might, as we know politically, there's always <laughs> it always leans towards uh you know two dimensions. So right. you got yeah, 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 that's right. You need four wheels or something. I don't know, but yeah, that that's 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 interesting. That makes sense. I guess it, it's logical to bring in Kant, right? Who will take up the period? Well, I say the period. He's responding to Hume. So you know, if we're logically leading Leibniz, Spinoza, Hume, do you see there to be then? a what a kind of and i guess we talked about this some in the prolegomenon discussion mm-hmm. but if you if you were to have like a, an, an appendix or a, an epigraph to this book like does kant perhaps go somewhere wrong i mean for example you know in the spinoza chapter i believe it's the second one where spinoza kind of refutes the faculties of mind is there something where kant now like he makes a couple of faculties of mind that, for example, his faculty of, of desire is, yeah. is the one that Deleuze and Guattari bring up. Say, look, Kant, Kant made desire productive, but then he immediately botched it by yeah, making it psychological. <laughs> Chained it to the, psycho- to the psyche and then to the moral law. Of course, right. right. That's just one example I'm thinking of. But is there something that because Kant becomes the kind of inauguration pre-critical. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that like Kant sort of is. Yeah. So if I've been trying to make the case in the course of the book that like, yeah, guess what? You don't have the power of consciously to determine your volition in accordance with just what you understand to be true. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, there's more going on in the unconscious level than would make that possible. I do think Kant is, like you said, if you were saying of Socrates earlier, there's a kind of naive optimism. Like mm-hmm. Kant is like the most optimistic about this stuff. There right? you go. Okay. He's just like, yeah, just do your reflection work. Yep. Consult a priori with what it is <laughs> that you know to be true. Mm-hmm. And you will determine the moral law with its universality and use that to subject your will to the strictures of what you know to be good. Right. And um, I don't know, man. I don't know if I've ever done that. Yeah, right. <laughs> that seems kind of hard, actually. You're kind of making it sound, you know, and again, in the metaphysics of morals, he's he's clearer about this being a difficult thing, maybe even an impossible thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least in the way that he gets taken up, and it, sometimes I think in the text itself, it sure seems like he thinks you can just you can just use your rational power of, of conscious critical self-reflection to just dominate your will. 
right? To just absolutely right. subject it to the, the thing that you rationally recognize to be true. And this is, if let's call it, if not naively optimistic, like aspirational at best. Like, yeah. I don't know, man. I've, I've very, I've very rarely seen that. Right. And, if, and, if ever. And it seems to be insofar as we are legislators based on following that max, the universalizing the maxim of the will, we are also subject. So our freedom is collectively supposedly mm -hmm. collectively determinable based on i'm not going to say a kind of it's again this reminds me of what you brought up with spinoza where we have to be a little bit wary of charlatans who are claiming to be <laughs> these prophets and miracles because it's very quick like insofar as we are subject we are subject to ourselves as legislators right there seems to be a slippage there easily for a kind of I don't want to say fascism. I guess that word gets thrown around, but a kind of totalitarianism, right? Yeah. Where, to use language that like Deleuze might use, like there's like an imperialism of reason here, right? Right. Where he gets to say things like, I know you might be worried because again, I think Kant's so slippery because I also think he's, he's so smart. Right. Like he gets of like, you know, you're worried that when I start talking about like the universality of a moral principle that like, what if what it is what if you're wrong what if my rule that i try to determine is as universal is experienced by you as an imposition and he goes don't worry that can't possibly happen <laughs> right? because if you're reasoning right you will agree with me <laughs> it's like oh man dude i don't know are you sure yeah exactly um, by contrast with with these sort of more let's call it cautious approaches to these moral questions that you get with Spinoza with Hume there's something unsatisfying there too by the way if you've ever read Hume's inquiry concerning morals it's like a very underwhelming book it's mm. kind of hilarious it sort of shows me by like sort of um how to put it it's sort of like proof of concept for why like you can't just be an empiricist if you want to have a decent moral philosophy okay because the whole thing is he's like okay look what do we know only what we know what we know is only based on experience and when we talk about people being good or bad people, we're basically talking about, you know, how other people praise or blame them. So let's just make a list of stuff that people get praised and blamed right. for. Right. And then, I don't know, try to do the stuff that people praise and try to avoid doing the stuff that people think makes you bad. And it's like, that's not nothing. I don't know. Yeah. I don't yeah. know about that at all. Uh, yep. What if people are wrong about what's blameworthy or praiseworthy? Then, like, I guess we're just stuck making our lists and hoping that we're going to hit something. But but anyway, with Spinoza, with Hume, even even that aside, yeah, you avoid some of these kinds of, you avoid a certain form of the kind of dangers involved in this, in the kind of universality that we get with the Kantian moralism, right? You will still get prescriptions. Spinoza does say you have to, no choice but to increase your, seek to increase your power, seek joyful encounters with others, attempt to understand, try to be loving, right? These are not conditional or hypothetical imperatives these are things you must do but there's something different in kind about them than the sort of universality we get with kantian morals yeah i think yeah i like that and it does seem though for spinoza the increase of our power is also collectively bound mm -hmm. right i mean i know he he may not use the language general welfare i'm trying to think of the language he uses or how he gets translated but he is always kind of not merely thinking of ethics as 
self-help individual merely psychical individuation i think he well obviously there's one of the titles of is it balabar who has spinoza and the trans individual like he is thinking on this collective level yes yes i think that's right and i mean it's one of the things there's there's a lot to be said about the relationship between spinoza and hobbes because they're so similar in so many ways you know they've got this kind of similar conception of like sovereignty and of power but one of the big differences is that it always seems to me that for hobbes power is a kind of zero-sum game if i increase my power that's coming at the expense of someone else's so power over which is oppositional whereas with spinoza at least you know that's not always true it's at least possible that sometimes and maybe often the increase in my power comes along with the increase in yours right and we are now collectively more powerful together and more powerful as individuals in and through the joyful encounter that we have where we develop adequate knowledge and then activity becomes possible where previously we only suffered passions. That sort of like synthetic collective trans individual way of thinking about power is one that I at least find appealing, right? I don't know if we uh, like and I said, politically, we, politically more useful, salient, useful, and again like something that like I think is worth striving after, even if it's not yet where we're at. It's something that we can work towards that I think is very valuable. The increase in my power is something that I have to strive after, but that doesn't have to mean a, de- a decrease in yours. In the best of cases, it means an increase in yours as well. Right. And it seems as though I know we haven't really talked much about adequate and inadequate knowledge. That would obviously tie into this question of our powers. Right. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like the Hobbesian conception of zero sum game perhaps would be based solely or in the majority in these inadequate, this inadequate knowledge. Yes, I think Spinoza would say that. So the way to to get at adequacy versus inadequacy, I have a whole thing on it. And and it's good. It's very good. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It's it's not about a correctness of propositional judgments. Right. Yes. And I think that like the way to make sense of it is that with an adequate idea, I'm not just aware of what it is that I know, but I know its cause as well. I understand it through its cause. Whereas an inadequate idea might be true, but it's a true thought that I might be having accidentally or for the wrong reasons, right? I might stumble upon it the way that Spinoza likes to put it. It's like a conclusion without premises, right? That's the best case. The best case is I got the right conclusion, but I don't know how I got here. And so much of our knowledge is like that. Again, like sort of emphasizing the kind of darker side of these like thinkers. Because, you know, if you read Spinoza, you read Leibniz, especially if you read like, descriptions of their projects like these are the arch rationalists you know these are the guys who are the rationalist system builders who you might then think give all power to reason and and think that like you know rational thought is is a matter of course like for spinoza like very little of what we do is rational in this sense very little we're mostly condemned by the nature of our finitude by the nature of our being the idea of a body to have inadequate knowledge you know i imagine you i imagine cooper cherry i imagine taylor adkins i don't mm-hmm. really understand you in the way that i could i don't know your causes i don't know your your forms of determination 
And the I same for have... ourselves, really, right? Like, you know. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I don't have I don't have tons of access to my own causes either, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes yeah. I can develop that kind of adequate understanding, but you have to see it as a rare thing, something yeah. that's difficult that has to be achieved or accomplished, certainly not something given. I think that this maybe ties together my three thinkers too into the return to a Deleuzian motif against Kant. You know, he says stuff like this in the, the image of thought chapter. The real presupposition, the dogmatic image of thought is that thought is actual. It's basically a matter of course, and it aims at the true. I think Spinoza and Leibniz and Hume, right, you know, rationalists, though they may be, they don't buy that. They think that it's actually kind of weird and rare for us to develop knowledge, that it's like something that only happens under really specific, peculiar conditions that are hard to come by. And then even then, we can't rely on that to like make us do better. Right? It yeah. doesn't even get us to the good practical consequences that we were hoping for, which isn't to say that you should give up on reason, but like put it in its place, understand yeah. its limitations. I like that a lot. And just to go back to one of the things that, that came about reading your work, I'll say one thing about inadequate and adequate knowledge. It does seem like adequate ideas at least Obviously, is it has anything to do with what we mentioned where Heidegger is critiquing truth as adequation, where it, right, it right. is a correspondence theory. It's yeah. this, as you sort of mentioned, it's this knowledge of, of causes. And yeah. of course, there's the third kind, which is intuition, and it leads to beatitude and sort of a contemplation of eternity, right? Yeah. However it's translated. But I, I guess the adequate, what I liked was you emphasize how adequate ideas not just imply, they implicate, they involve activity of the mind. Yes. Right. And so this could lead us towards one of Liz's problems or one of the things he hones in on is this question of active joys. But I also wanted to say one more thing and I'll let you respond to whatever you feel like. I liked your footnote and you may have been quoting another thinker, but it was that in Hobbes, the Kanadas, the striving is seemingly static where it is as though there were a pre-given nature, whereas insofar as human nature or human essence is, is, is desire, and by reason of opposition, you know, Spinoza's understanding of Kanadis is a dynamic one, whereby right. it is about increasing our activity, our, our ability to be affected and to affect, and therefore mm-hmm. increase our power. There is this that too kind of draws a stark difference between Hobbes and Spinoza. Yeah, I think that that's one of the, I wish I had more clear language with which to talk about this. Because I think okay. if, you, if you get this, you get what's so interesting about Spinoza. Mm-hmm. And maybe unique to Spinoza even. Which is, yeah, this idea of striving being dynamic. Because as we've said, right, or as I said before, and we've been talking about, Spinoza says the actual essence of a given thing is it's striving, it's canatus. But that's not given. It's not given once and for all. And my striving, my desire changes in the course of my experiences, right? Mm -hmm. The kinds of encounters that I have can shape and reshape what it is that I'm invested in, what it is that I'm aiming at, and what it is that I like take to be good or judge to be good, which is again, a good platonic inversion, right? It's not that I want what I want because it's good. It's because I want it that I call it good. Right. That's also fairly Freudian to a certain extent. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And this means that like at the same time that I might be sort of, so to speak, condemned to have the essence that I have, that essence changes. The essence of that I have as a desiring thing 
my desires aren't the same today as they were yesterday, let alone five years ago, 10 years ago. And who knows where they'll be in five years or 10 years from now. The question then is of trying to like organize experiences or encounters in such a way that it encourages more of those joyful interactions to try to, to encourage or foster the development of not just passive, but active joys, right? Where I'm enjoying because I am understanding and understanding in and through my enjoyment with others and helping others increase their powers as well. That's something worth striving for on Spinoza's yeah. account. And it makes sense only because the nature of my striving isn't given once and for all, right? But it is dynamic. It is open-ended. This perhaps goes back to, you said desiring thing. I think this goes back to, to Coop's point about desiring production and desiring machines because it is an active ongoing negotiation a, a what's the word that the um, french like to use it's a montage right you're not only you're not only mantling or organizing you're also potentially dismantling certain let's say negative habits or or, or mm -hmm. blockages that might impede different means of um of constructing or whatever obviously that sounds too conscious right we got to be again this is about uh, some of this is, a, is about the language we use well i suppose this is the socratic thing when he goes around to all like the different builders the ship makers and stuff and he's he's like you have a know-how but do you really do you really know anyway no yeah they killed that guy he's so oh, i mean yeah exactly i mean nietzsche nietzsche puts it pretty clear i, th I think it's in the what twilight of the idols where he's like there is something something ugly about socrates it's 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 distasteful it's it's not very uh it absolutely okay. is yeah there was a bit on this question of knowledge and i just wonder if if this is i meant this in the most general terms do you feel because you you'd like to use the term nosiological when you describe when you when you work through spinoza's theory of desire adequate ideas etc i just wanted to because I couldn't find a clear answer, and I do feel like, whereas, okay, obviously epistemology and, and nosiology, they both kind of come from Greek words for knowledge, but, you know, mm -hmm. gnosis, there is something a little bit sort of perhaps knowledge based on mystery, if you will, mm -hmm. or even elucidation of mysteries, whereas epistemology, do you feel like epistemology has too much baggage? It's already this, like, kind of concretized over sedimented term that implies not just a Kantian lineage obviously yeah. but it implies all of, all of these kind of theories of how we know what we know whereas noseology may be something more maybe it has that unconscious dimension that perhaps your thoughts on perhaps if there is any it doesn't have to be rigorous but this terminological distinction you're right to pick up on that I kind of intentionally avoided talking about Spinoza's epistemology in the chapters and prefer to talk about his noseology. And so there's a couple of things that I think are behind this. Part of it is like, as he said, especially at this date, this late date, uh, epistemology as a term has a ton of baggage and it can't but call to mind like, oh, theories of justified true belief and we're right. going to do a Gettier problem and you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm <laughs> just not sure that that's particularly interesting if we're trying to get at what Spinoza is doing. I think instead we should understand, you know, it's part two of the ethics it isn't called like on of knowledge, it's of mind, right? It's a theory right. or a picture of the mind. And that involves a different set of questions than what makes something true. 
the question of adequacy versus inadequacy is a question of how the mind is affected by the ideas that it comes to possess and what sort of what sort of effects follow from that as opposed to asking the question of like you know what's how do we know what's true is true you know Spinoza kind of dispenses with that pretty quickly it's actually kind of hilarious in the uh, treatise on the emendation of the intellect he says look method is just having a reflexive idea of a true idea having a true idea and then like reflecting on it that is method there's no external extrinsic thing that I bring to bear on a true right. idea. It's just following the logic of the true idea that we already have. And then he says, do we have a true idea? And he's like, yes, next question. I don't need to worry about it in a certain way, right? This Even was, in, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just thinking this was one of those footnotes I really enjoyed where you said, Hegel is at pains to distinguish himself from Spinoza, but yeah. the phenomenology <laughs> of spirit seems to accord with, with, with Spinoza's earliest text yeah, uh, I in, think in so. terms of method. Yeah, exactly. And one of the other interesting things about the theory of adequacy and inadequacy is that there's something true even in every inadequate idea. It's not a distinction between like correct and incorrect ideas, really. It's a matter of finding out what is adequate in the inadequate idea that I have. Right. right. So I have, for instance, like an image of you, as I said before, mm -hmm. which is largely inadequate, but it doesn't mean that it's all wrong. Right. right. Like, certainly there are things in my image of you which are adequate. And the difficult, the work to do is to try to distinguish between those things because they don't always have an imminent criterion or a distinguishing mark, or at least not an obvious one. But yeah. like there are ways of getting at that. And for Spinoza, it means making a retreat to the generality of the common notions where I can now say it's not just... I have a singular image of you that's different than all of the people. It's no, what is it? What is in common here? Not just to you and the other things that I imagine are like you, but between you and me, right. that'll allow us to sort of get a foothold and start developing more adequate conceptions. And I think here, yeah, it makes sense to think of this as a nosiological kind of picture more than a theory of truth. That would kind of motivated my moving away from the language of epistemology. And I think I, I even tried. I, like I think I even in a first, in an earlier draft, initially was describing it as an epistemological account and then i was like that doesn't actually that doesn't seem right actually you know we're not he's not sitting around thinking about or explaining what distinguishes a true from a not true idea it's a completely different set of motivating problems that he's that he's working with and i do think in the wake of kant we we are in the mode of thinking of epistemology as this question of appearances versus right. a thing in itself and yeah. these kind of things. I mean, that's not all epistemology, but there is a, at least maybe in continental philosophy, there's a, a certain trend to associate epistemology with this question of we're sort of condemned to the appearing of appearances, mm -hmm. et cetera. Right. It's anachronistic to a certain extent. Yes. Uh, but again, it all depends on, I, I know this is more of a nominal thing, but I did appreciate your use of nauseological because it does, it does also crop up from time to time in, in certain French thinkers, especially those that we're, we're interested in, in, in mm -hmm. this early, middle 20th century where sometimes nauseological comes up and it's not quite indicated given the context, but right. you know, it's kind of like, okay, well, perhaps this is the same type of, of concern it's like well it's not it's not a kantian problem it's not a phenomenological problem something like that going back to early 20th century french scene you get i think it's Cavayez, yeah who who really says that there are two approaches 
in philosophy, right? There's the philosophy of the concept and the philosophy of consciousness. He could put Bergson and the phenomenologists in the consciousness camp and then say, like, on the other side, we have Spinoza and like the heirs to Spinoza's thinking that you know, maybe does include Hegel, but not Kant. Right. And yeah, there's something very foreign to a phenomenological inspiration in thinking Spinoza's, in thinking with Spinoza at the same time that. Yeah, I can start to talk about how I, you know, I have partial ideas or inadequate ideas of things that means they appear to me in certain ways, but it's really not a phenomenological kind of account. It's really right. not. It's departing from different premises completely. Yeah. I won't make a claim as to like the superiority of one approach over the other, but they certainly come to different places and mm -hmm. I think both should be taken seriously. I worry, I guess, about some of the sorts of presuppositions that come along with that kind of phenomenological way of articulating epistemological problems as maybe presupposing too much or protesting too much yeah yeah, yeah i like that we're getting close to two hours is there anything else gil you want to bring up uh we could start winding down i just try to be conscious of of everyone's time that's all i picked out your, your footnote on mayasu but i i, I think that's a whole can of worms you know it <laughs> probably uh, is a whole can of worms you yeah. know it's uh the principle of unreason it would be fun but you could do a whole episode on that versus the principle of sufficient reason totally yeah. um to segue to the outro and letting you discuss i know you've already mentioned the, your forthcoming essay on miracles and you even mentioned perhaps like another book in the works but you could say more about it i suppose i wanted to give you a chance to maybe single out or wrap things up which is going to seem like a pun soon uh with the conclusion to your work where you indicate this notion of involvement do you want to maybe say a word or two about zoning in on on this on this term if i with mashere was giving deleuze a little bit of a hard time before for casting spinoza's philosophy in terms of expression mm -hmm. i actually do think that you could understand spinoza's as a philosophy of involvement okay. where we are involved with each other we are all involved. Our ideas involve things of which we're not aware. I came to find in the course of trying to talk about this, this unconscious of thought that's different than like a Freudian metapsychological account. It made sense to say, to use this language that say like, you know, my desires involve things of which I'm not aware. My perception involves perceptions that I'm not conscious of. And that this gets us at a different way of thinking about yeah what it means for something to be constitutive because if something is involved in my mind that's not to say that it's got a direct a direct causal line exactly it also doesn't you know to avoid some of like Foucault and Deleuze's like worries doesn't mean resemblance it doesn't mean analogy there's a concrete determination involved in involvement that sucks <laughs> It's helpful language for, for getting at what's interesting about articulating this, this logic or this structure beneath or below or behind my, my consciousness that helps account for things like acrasia. My mind, if, if we can do another detournement of like that, you know, we don't know what a body can do. Like my mind involves more than I know. Right? Yeah. And that's only upsetting if you thought that you we're perfectly conscious of everything in your mind. But if, you know, you're not committed to that pretty demonstrably false idea, right. then this just means that there's more to, to explore. 
And I think that that's, uh, again, worthy of the name of ethics. It's kind of that, does that truth, that awareness bring despair or does it bring a sense of wonder, a sense of, of adventure even yeah. uh, with yeah. its pitfalls? Sure. I do think about it in those terms. And I think yeah. that it would be the way in which it would be something that you would despair of is only if you're like still clinging to a pretty sad image of a shallow mind as your own. And, uh, right. It, you have more it, than that. It reminded me of a question that Coop brought up with, it was when we were discussing Rie and, and Coop, you asked me about finitude. And I think that that's something that Gill's book brings to light is, is part of the unconscious of thought sheds new light on the meaning of, of our finitude and how that is not necessarily a cause for despair. I mean, one of the thinkers that you cite, I forget the name, you'll know probably, following Spinoza's logic, there is a complication of God's omniscience given if God's knowledge isn't, doesn't follow from like a free cause of will, the sort of quantum entanglement, Heisenberg uncertainty principle might put a, uh, a little kink in the, the chain of, of knowledge and in, in God's infinite understanding. So yeah. like perhaps there is even some finitude inherently in, in nature and therefore, in God, if we're, if we're going to take Deus Sive, Sive Natura, right. you know, to the letter. It's uh, pretty well known at this point, but, you know, Einstein said at one point that the only God that he'd believe in would be Spinoza's. And then, you know, in the wake of the sort of quantum revolution, he says of the uncertainty principle, Heisenberg's at some point that, you know, precisely God does not play dice. If there's a way to reconcile I was playing around for a little bit and I don't know how fruitful this is actually as like a philosophical exercise, but I was, I was playing around for a little while with like some of these like metalogical results, like Gödel's completeness and completeness yeah. theorems and thinking about, there's this book by Patrick Grimm called the incomplete universe, which makes the case that, you know, if we take these metalogical results seriously, a number of common philosophical and theological moves fall apart. This was the footnote. Yeah. Okay. This, this is Grimm. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Patrick Grimm. Yeah. And so like one of them is this idea of possible worlds. He's thinking in the analytic context, more like than the Leibnizian, right? We get this kind of okay. like David Lewis, Kripke stuff. This is going to ground our knowledge claims in a metaphysical way. And he's like, okay, that idea of a totality of possible worlds falls apart under the weight of the incompleteness theorem. So that's not going to fly. And he says something similarly about omniscience, that the idea of divine omniscience runs aground of these paradoxes of self-reference as soon as the system's capable of thinking itself. And like, what does this do to Spinoza is a question that I've been kind of slowly trying to wrestle with because I don't exactly know. I don't exactly know what follows from this. But you might have grounds to say that, like, no, even like just taking logic seriously, when Spinoza says, for instance, that like, you know, anything that can fall under an infinite intellect is a mode that does necessarily exist at some point or another. The logician can say, when you say everything that can fall under an infinite intellect, you either don't know what you're talking about or you're going to contradict yourself at a certain point. And if this has important ramifications for the ontology, it might have ramifications for the ethics as well. Uh, yeah. And yeah, these are just open questions for me at this point. Yeah. That's good. I mean, maybe that brings us back to this Deleuze's solution of trying to subtract the one, right? right. Trying trying to make substance turn around yeah. the modes, et cetera. Maybe that's one of the ways in which 
not to say that that avoids all of these because i would have we would have to explore those right. those metallurgical things together but yeah that if we get rid of what was it he calls the bwo the the it's like a un, untotalizable totality something like that right you know like there's this oh yeah yeah we start getting into this language about non-totalizable intensive multiplicity well there's that there's yeah, there's there's different. also that yeah that's it may be slightly different language on bw but i'm just thinking of anti-edipus ah, resource talking about right that term but i think that that it works in mm -hmm. any case no all of this is is really fascinating and it made me appreciate thinking of why one would try to critique freud so strongly and yet Watry can say something towards the end of his life where he remains a Freudian. There seems to be this right. <laughs> Spinozist yeah. Freud. I know that wasn't the goal of your book necessarily, but it, I agree with Coop. It kind of got me appreciating some of the stuff. I mean, again, it, it, it's very fortuitous that we had you first on to talk with us, uh, work through some anti-Oedipus with us, because it does feel like your work on the unconscious of thought sheds new light on some of these difficult passages in anti-oedipus that's so, super cool i mean like you know a, yeah. a work always exceeds the intention of the author and i'm right. just glad to know that that it does things that you've uh, that you got stuff out of it that it pushed right. you in certain ways that's that's very cool and i'm really happy for the opportunity to have talked to you guys about it today you mentioned you said you you were either thinking or wanting to to write a another book if you ever get around to it you mentioned something about maybe maimon and the transcendental deduction is this maybe this is a way you can just tell us about any forthcoming projects maybe there's other translation work i know you and i have we've talked about some of this stuff you were able to get me the the sayer leibniz mm -hmm. yeah. book his also another, too long good god it's a giant what was giant. happening in the mid 20th century these guys couldn't stop themselves it's interesting i mean I, i've talked to you about the mathron book right individual yep. and community it's something where that's not possible to tackle alone. So probably not. No, if, <laughs> it would if, destroy me. <laughs> you know, if and I also have a foothold now in, in Edinburgh Press because I'll have a, a translation of, of a work on Deleuze coming out hopefully uh, later this year. So cool. so maybe that's something you and I, I would love to to work with you on a translation. Obviously, we would want to maybe get um, the Ministry of Culture over in France to to subsidize us subsidize nice. us and get yeah. us a nice payment uh -huh. but um i'm always open to i'm finishing up some translations now and i'll have i'll have my docket open so maybe we can collaborate in the future that would be great i would love that what yeah, am i tell got us, coming yeah tell projects us that i'm working on yeah so i've been obsessing over my mom for like a year and change now it's really wild i think what he was up to like you know one of the first and earliest critics of kant who also wants to buy that the critical turn is like actually revolutionary and that there's no going back some of the other early critics you know you got your Jacobi or like you know the even like his followers were like you know Reinhold there's something else going on with Maimon I think and it, and it sort of sets the agenda for the development of post-Kantian German idealism by noticing a few problems that Kant's system has in terms of like you mentioned before faculty dualism mm -hmm. the activity of the understanding versus the uh, passivity of sensibility, how do those interact? And the schematism doesn't really seem to work. And Maimon, um, what he he denies the fact of experience. Yes. Or well, how yes. does it, you put this again, <laughs> I'm trying to remember how, how you put it. Yeah, it's a really wild moment. I mean, so again, he says, Kant says, right, that he's like, okay, 
we've got these 12 categories and I'm going to do the deduction and the deduction, he means it's like a juridical metaphor, quid juris. Right. By what right do we apply these categories to objective appearances? And so he's going to establish not the fact of their existence, quid facti, but he's going to answer the question quid juris. That in, and hopefully the deduction will work out in the affirmative. See, don't worry, because these categories are what make objective experience possible. They have objective validity as applied to appearances, but not outside of experience. Maimon says, look, what this has done is presupposed that there is a fact of experience by which we mm -hmm. mean synthetic cognition of a manifold through the categories, right. and then tried to work backwards from there to explain how it's possible. And he goes, well, I can't do that because I doubt that there is such a thing as experience at all. Uh, so I'm going to need a different procedure if we're going to make any progress here, because that thing that Kant calls experience is like, I don't even know if that's real. And that's so, just a completely wild skeptical. So Barclay denies bodies. Maybe Maimon denies experience. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. All exactly. Right. Which, if nothing else, kind of shakes up, right? Like Kant wants to say that his system of philosophy is a kind of unconditional character. It's necessary. This is right. true about right. cognition. And Maimon can just be like, I don't know, all seems pretty conditional to me. And it's conditional upon the, ex the existence of a kind of thing called experience that I don't even know if that exists. That's the thing that Deleuze always harps on is, is reasoning from the conditions and assuming a resemblance between what is right. conditioned and what yes. is unconditioned. Yes, Maimon's already pushing in this direction in Got 1790, yep. which is crazy. And yeah, he says that, right, and Deleuze does pick up on this as well, whereas like what Kant's trying to do is find the conditions for the possibility, for the conditions for possible experience. Maimon wants us to determine like the genesis of real experience, yeah. which is a different shape of a problem. And that's, so, a Del that's the Deleuzean thing. That's, totally. that's a huge thing that he takes up. And he's, he's, he doesn't talk about Maimon a lot, but he does give him credit here right. and there. It comes up in a few places. There's like lines in Desert Islands, the idea of aesthetics and Kant's genesis and Kant's aesthetics or mm -hmm. aesthetics and Kant's genesis, whatever. So falling out of that too, I think that there's interesting stuff to say about, I'm really kind of fascinated with this idea that I'm pulling out of Maimon in his weird coalition system, right? The way that he mobilizes Hume's skeptical resources, but then the rationalism of Spinoza, the rationalism of Leibniz. There's an idea of something like a transcendental rationalism. Maimon says at some point that he's an empirical skeptic, but a rational dogmatist. Can you do both? Can you have both of those things? And is, that, I think is this transcendental empiricism? You might know. be, right? Like there's, there's something really fascinating there that I think deserves more attention than it's gotten. And so, yeah, I'm just trying to work out what's going on there. His books are notoriously hard and most of them are not translated into english yet although i'm given to yeah. understand that one of his later books the attempt at a new logic i think is going to be coming out soon which i'm excited to see i don't know with whom but yeah, yeah we might have uh, doesn't john rofe have a didn't he translate something from Maimon, or is no, it working no, no. on something or no, am we, i we're gonna have henry summers Hall oh great back yep. on and he co-translated yes the, the uh, essay the essay on transcendental essay. philosophy yep. right which monumental undertaking, what a difficult book that is. And I'm really appreciative for their work there. So yeah, I'm working on this Maimon stuff, this idea of transcendental rationalism. And yeah, other than that, I don't know, we'll see, we'll see where, where I go. Like I was mentioning before, I do want to return to this kind of larger orienting project around miracles, but it's still sort of nebulous. Uh, we'll yeah. see what comes of that. Potentially uh, collaborating with me. Would love that. Absolutely. We'll find something. And of course, I also stay busy on my podcast, What's yep. Left of Philosophy, uh, which you can go find anywhere. 
and um, yeah, we do episodes like every two weeks or so. Well, Gil, thanks for coming on with us today. Uh, it's exciting. Um, you know, once I finish up, it's funny you brought up Cavies. Once I finish translating his his little book on axiomatics. Oh, cool! Yeah. Um, then I'll, I'll I'll be pretty much pretty much open, and so maybe maybe this spring, the summer, we yeah. can um we can think about you know, obviously something we want to do. It doesn't have to be Matheron, doesn't have to be the Sayre Leibniz book. Uh, obviously those are huge undertakings. So there might be something else we could, we can look at. I, the, another big tome I always talk about is Veronique Bergen's uh, book on Deleuze's ontology. That's another 800 page book. So <laughs> we could, we could maybe start smaller. Uh, you know, there might, <laughs> obviously there's stuff that, that, that you would want to look at. Sadly, my knowledge in German is very, very, uh, very poor yeah, in terms too. of, so we would have to stick to the francophone side, but like, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's there's gay rule, you know, there's stuff we could we could think about. But yeah, in any case, lots. absolutely, um, we'll put all of this info in the in the show notes, and you know, episode will drop next weekend. You know, God willing, uh, Coop willing <laughs> too, because he's the he's the maestro. That's right over here, but Dr. Uh, Dre, Dr. Dre, yeah, in but uh, <laughs> we're gonna stay on just for a few more moments to talk about our episode next week. And well, uh, we'll be we'll be in touch. Sounds great. Thanks again for having me, guys. I will uh, talk to you soon. Always Thank a you, pleasure, Gil. Gil. Thank you. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks. And once again, thanks to Gil Morejon for joining us on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is unconscious. The whole state of things, a pure violence without object This is the typical violence of information. It's violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in block work orange.